right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad that you guys are here. Special shout out to our visitors if you're new here. If it's maybe it's been a while or if you're brand new, um, a special welcome to you. It, it matters to us that you are here. I just wanted you to know that. It makes a difference. And we understand that when you take your time and you put yourself out there and like, let's go try this new place with all these weird people that are going to want to shake my hand or talk to me or all this. And I'm not looking at any weird people in particular, but you know who you are. Um, it, it's, it's important to us, and we value that. So Gabe and I will be hanging out in serv- after service. The rest of our staff will be hanging out after service. We'd love to just touch base with you and kind of get to know you a little bit, if that's something that you want. Um, there's a lot to know about this church, and we're pretty, we're pretty uh, blessed to be a part of it, so I hope that you kind of feel that way. Um, as Pastor Gabe said, we are trying our Facebook Live stream now. And it's funny that I preach in front of everybody a couple times every weekend and have for years, and all of a sudden, I'm now really concerned with what I'm doing with my hands because I know there's a camera right here, and like, does this look natural or what? So if you see me, like, wondering what's happening here, what is he doing? I'm not having a seizure. I'm just trying to figure out how to look natural for the camera. So, hey, we're, uh, let's get into the message here, and I'll do the best I can to ignore the camera. But if you are joining us live, welcome. Glad, glad that you guys are here, too. Give us a comment or some ideas or, or like it so that we can uh, make it better if, that, if that's something that you want to take advantage of. Um, we are in the middle of a kind of a mini-series about called Prophecies and Promises, Prophecies and Promises about Old Testament scripture specifically as it relates to a coming Messiah, especially as we go into what's called the holy season. And we're kind of in the middle of that, right? We, we kicked off Lent a while ago. We're doing this Lenten devotional that we have. And if you didn't get a copy of that, you can ask us for it on the way out or we've made it available online to where we just have a scripture each day as we go uh, up to Easter. And the idea is that we just pray on those things together. It's kind of important, kind of a a powerful thing I know that happens in my heart. When I look at a scripture and I'm praying about it, I'm meditating about it, and I know that other people in our church family are doing the same thing. To me, that's significant. I hope you enjoy it, and if it's something you want to partake in, uh, feel free to join us. Again, we've got hard copies in the back if you want them, or they're available online. But between now and Easter... There are kind of a succession of important days, of significant holy days, if you will, as we go forth. Many of them are Christian-observed days, and some of them are specifically days that, more often than not, it's considered a Jewish sort of a holiday. There's one of those that happens tomorrow. Who knows what that is? It's called Purim. Purim is a, again, traditionally a Jewish holiday um, that is very, very significant for the Jewish people. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's also very significant for us as Christians. As we've gone through this series, we've talked about how Old Testament prophecy relates to a coming Messiah and how it's important to understand that each one of these prophecies are not just like, hey, that's cool, that talks about Jesus how it's important for us to see these things as signposts, as breadcrumbs, if you will, of of little clues along the way that help us to understand 
that God has always been in control. God has always had a plan. And nothing in the entirety of human experience from the very beginning has caught him by surprise. And every single thing that has happened to us throughout the history of humanity is ordained by God. And it points towards Jesus. And we'll see that ultimate fulfillment, obviously, or at least a midpoint fulfillment as we approach Easter. But when we look at holidays like this, this this Purim, and it's an amazing story. And I'm going to talk through that story. We'll kind of teach our way through that story. But you'll look at this and realize one of the first things that you'll probably realize, especially if you've read the scripture. By the way, Esther is the book that we're going through, and Esther is 10 chapters. They're not long chapters, so I want to recommend that you take some time this afternoon. It's supposed to rain this afternoon. Maybe sit back with the good book and read the 10 chapters of Esther. There's so much there, but I'll kind of give you some highlights as we go through. But there is a lot in there, and you're going to read this. If maybe it's the first time you've ever read it, or maybe you've read it before and just kind of skimmed it. But you're going to realize that you cannot make this stuff up. The stuff that's in there, you're going to go, they, they would never be able to make a TV show out of that because people wouldn't believe it. Who many, how many of you um, watch TV shows like Downton Abbey and things like this, like you, you binge them? Gabe and I are doing that right now. We binge from time to time, and the latest one that we're doing is Downton Abbey. And you look at that, and you're like, look at all these different layers of things that are going on in their lives. Some of them are really cool things. You like to kind of put yourself in that position, like if that were me living in this palace and, and, and having all this wealth and prestige and the things that would happen, and then there's this whole subculture of, of the servants that live under there and how those servants then interact back and forth. Um, it's fun to look at that and all the drama that happens there. And there's drama anytime you have... Uh, Anytime you have two people together, <laughs> really, there's going to be drama. And the more people you get together, the more drama. And the more tiers and hierarchy of, of we have servants and we have the ruling class and we have royals and we have these things, it seems like just the more that gets in. And Esther is one of those stories that is just packed full of this drama. And it is absolutely accurate and true. Not only does Scripture say it, so if we trust in Scripture, Scripture declares that as to be a historical event, but we see throughout history there are many other verifications and outside, um, um, outside confirmation that these things actually happened in this way. So we look at them, and again, like I started to say, the first thing that you're going to notice, or one of them, is it doesn't mention God. In the entire book of Esther, all ten chapters... It doesn't mention God. And yet, God is very much present in everything that happens. His plans, his purposes, his grand design, and his heart to at all costs fulfill the promises that he has made to us, to his people, is a common thread that runs throughout all of that. Anybody know what the other, just a quick trivia question, the other book of the Bible that doesn't ever mention God? There's two of them. Anybody know? It's the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon does not explicitly mention God. <coughs> but let's get into this. 
It's the book of Esther, as I said, very, very popular among uh, the Jewish people. It's actually the foundation for the celebration or the feast of Purim that we're approaching. But a lot of Christians don't really understand the significance of it. That's what I hope to relay to you here today. There's a significance to us as believers in Jesus Christ. So let's get in. First of all, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork, like some of the background on what's going on and why this was written and how we can understand it in its entirety here as a, as a historical event as well. So first of all, Book of Esther is an Old Testament scripture. Okay, it's an Old Testament scripture. It was written somewhere around 450 to 470 B.C., Okay, somewhere around there, meaning it, it, it's approximate. And we judge this by other events and things that are happening at the same time. That's how scholars look at this and say, well, this talks about this event happening, and we know that happened here, and so they extrapolate a lot of things, and some of it's guesswork, so we kind of have a, an area here. But we do know that it recounts about a 10-year period in the history of the Persian Empire. Persian Empire at this point in time is extremely powerful, okay? They have gone around and they have been in battle after battle. They have conquered other kingdoms, other people groups. They have enslaved some. They have completely destroyed others. And, and this is essentially the heyday of the Persian Empire. Now, the ruler at this time is a king named Xerxes. Some of us have heard that. Xerxes is significant uh, in that one of the things that happens, in fact, as we go through Esther in the chronology here, somewhere around chapter 2 in, in Esther, and it's not talked about in this book, but historically, there's an event that goes on called the Battle of Thermopylae. Anybody ever heard of that? Anybody ever seen the movie The 300? And the Spartans fighting off... Uh, uh, the Persian Empire at the what was called the Hot Gates or the Gates of Thermopylae. That happens right pretty much in the middle of our narrative here. Now, we won't talk about it, but it's, it's important to know these kind of things are going on while this is unfolding in history, and it helps us to understand some of the ways that maybe Xerxes is thinking about things, some of the things that he allows to happen, some of his mindset, basically his mindset, through this whole thing. It's important to know. Xerxes actually at this point, as this story goes in, he's given himself the title, the king of Babylon. He's just anointed himself that. Now, the Babylonian empire um, under Nebuchadnezzar was actually overthrown by the Persians a while back, and, but he's taken on that title because the king of Babylon, that's very, very well known, and it carries some prestige. So he's taken that title on himself. Now, at this point, he's actually kind of been through a lot of battles, been through a lot of things going on, and he's kind of, not retreated, but taken a step back and taken up residence in what we would call the winter residence of the king or the winter palace uh, in a city called Susa, S-U-S-A. So that's kind of where he's hanging out. Susa, by the way, modern day is in Iran. And so that's where he is. Now, the author of the book of Esther is kind of under dispute a little bit. Some people say that it's Mordecai, who in Mordecai is a very central figure. We'll talk about him uh, quite a bit here in just a few minutes. Or it's another prophet named Ezra. Now, Ezra and the book of Esther and also the book of Nehemiah 
were all written more or less in kind of the same time period. Again, I say more or less because we're just kind of extrapolating. Plus or minus 40, 50 years, uh, they were all written. And some people think that Ezra, who is actually the author of the book of Ezra and of Nehemiah, in fact, Jewish Bibles sometimes, Ezra and Nehemiah, are the same book. We've broken them apart. But they're all written kind of about the same time. However, Ezra and Nehemiah talk about um, one of the central features is the Jewish people going back to Jerusalem, specifically under a king, another king named Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes is the son of King Xerxes. And so that's how if we put two and two together, I believe that the, the author is probably Mordecai and not Ezra because just of the time difference here. But we don't know for sure. It's not 100% certain that we do know for sure. But it is a historical account. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But the setting essentially then is, is the, the Jewish people have been under Xerxes, under the Persian Empire, They've been conquered again and again and kicked from one place to another, and they're kind of scattered tribes around. Some of the tribes have found a home here uh, with the Persian Empire, and by a home, I mean they're, they're not enslaved. They're kind of a second-class citizen. They're allowed to exist and work and kind of make their own choices, although they don't have a lot in the way of rights. But many of the Jewish uh, people have started kind of this exodus back to the homeland, back towards Jerusalem. And again, this is where we are. And this will focus specifically on those Jews who chose to remain behind in the service or living in uh, the Persian Empire. So we're going to talk about the book of Esther. I'm going to give you sort of, anybody remember Cliff's Notes from college? Cliff's Notes, right? It was like everything you need to know in kind of a little bullet points. We're going to kind of talk about it from a Cliff's Notes standpoint, but I'm going to use a scripture from the book of Esther itself to kind of document what goes on. The very first one we have, Esther 1, verses 1 and 2. Now it took place in the days of, now how would you pronounce that name right there? It's actually pronounced Akashverosh. Akashverosh. In the days, it took place in the days of Akashverosh, the Akashverosh who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Akashverosh sat on his royal throne, which is at the citadel in Susa. Okay, so he's, and Akashverosh translates in Greek as Xerxes. That's why we call him Xerxes. It's much easier to pronounce. But your Bible, depending on your version, may have it uh, listed either way. But it's the same guy. Verse 3, Esther 1, 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Medea, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. So, again, Cliff's Notes version. It's the 5th century B.C., He's had all these conquests. He's conquering all these. He's really kind of feeling his oats, and he decides that he wants to celebrate. Now, what they would typically do, the Persians, as they would go in and they would conquer a people group, they would take either the king or the prince or whoever was in charge of that people group or that city or that nation and take them in. 
They would, they would en- enlist or conscript the, the warriors into their army, so their army would grow with every conquest. The army would get bigger. And then they would take the leaders of that region and put them in places of kind of somewhat authority. We would sort of call it like the governor of a state. They'd be allowed to stay there kind of with some authority among their people, kind of a way for them to save face. They've been conquered but they've got some authority now, so they're not necessarily going to put up much resistance. In fact, they kind of, they'll go under Xerxes and gladly do what he says because they get all kinds of favor, and they get parties and things like that. He treats them reasonably well. At this point, Xerxes decides that he wants to basically show off his wealth, showcase his wealth and his power and everything by throwing a party for his, for his governors, for the princes, for his closest friends and pals, he decides he's going to do this. We see this Esther 1.4. Esther 1.4. There it is. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. Who's good at math? How long is 180 days? Six months. He throws a six-month party for his, but yeah, Dottie's like, I'm in. He throws a six-month party for his buddies, okay? Crazy party. Read Esther if you want to hear a little bit more about it. But then, after the end of six months for his closest, for the governors, his advisors, all of the, the royalty and everybody that he's got gathered around him, six months of partying, he decides, okay, it's time to wind this up. What does he do? Does he just say, okay, everybody go home? He throws a seven-day after party. Seven more days of partying. But this party, he opens up to everybody in the whole city. So everybody that lives in Susa, no matter where they are, are kind of invited to this party. And he wants this to be a barn burner of a party. So much so that he says, you know what? Uh, there's no restrictions against how much you can drink. In fact, I want to encourage everybody to just drink to their heart's content. He actually passes uh, or issues an edict, Esther 1.8, says the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Meaning, I'm going to pass an official a law that says whatever you want to do, however much you want to drink, go for it. By law, that's Okay. He's really encouraging this to be a barn burner of a party, and it is for the men. The women are not in general. Now, there are some women who we would call them the opposite of noble women who are invited to this party to party with the guys. But the queen, Queen Vashti, and her court and those who are closest to him and all the other noble women of this area of of the Persian Empire are having a separate party. They still party, but they're doing it by themselves. It's not, it's not fitting and it's not uh, accepted for them to party together. So they do it separately. Now, at the end of seven days, Xerxes has been not only for six months been partying it up, but especially now for this seven days, they are having this you know, no-holds-barred party and he decides that he's kind of feeling his oats, and he says, you know, my, my wife, Queen Vashti, she is beautiful. She's known all over the place. I want to show her off to my friends. 
I'm going to show her off to my buddy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to summon the queen. I'm going to send a runner to go get her and bring her down and show her off to all my friends. And I want to be sure that she's wearing her crown to show her status, right? Some traditions say that it was specifically only wearing her crown that he asked for. Now, she was also, Queen Vashti was also pregnant with Artaxerxes, who's the future ruler at the time. So she was pregnant, and he called her down there, wanted her to wear only her crown so he could show her off to his buddies. Well, what does she do? She says, I ain't doing that. She refuses flatly, like, uh, that's not happening. Now, her, in her mind, what she's probably thinking is, a couple days, he'll sober up. He'll forget he even asked me. It won't be a problem. We're fine. But it's not fine. Because he publicly summoned her. She said no. Now, picture all the closest advisors, the friends, the buddies, the other royalty that are around King Xerxes. And they're going, are you going to let her get away with that? More so, if you let her get away with that, what are our wives going to think? What's our chance that our wives are going to listen to us if you allow the queen to get away with disobeying your direct request? So Xerxes is fuming. The noblemen that are around him are going, man, you got to do something. You cannot let this stand. Esther 1.17 says, For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. In other words, what chance do we have? Our households are going to be a wreck if you allow this to happen. So Xerxes, he loved Queen Vashti. She was beautiful. He, she, was, she was everything he wanted except obedient at the time, and he could not let that stand. So you can read scripture for yourself to see how it happens. Some traditions say that Vashti was beheaded, but either way, she was deposed. Okay, she was, she was sent out. She is no longer his queen. Well, Xerxes' fury subsides, scripture says. He calms down a little bit and says, okay, but I do need a queen. I'm going to find myself another queen. Typically, queens came from these conquered nations or tribes that the Persians would run through. He would just find whoever was the most beautiful, and he would just bring them on as his queen. Well, now they're in this place. They're in Susa, and they're kind of they're stagnant in this area. So he's like, well, who do I choose? He decides that he's going to have a pageant, if you will, to find out who the most beautiful and who the most worthy to be his new queen is. So this is what he's doing. Now, in the midst of all this, there's a guy, Jewish man. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai has been living in Susa, and he's been living essentially under Persian rule for generations. Not him, but his, his whole family and his whole family lineage has been living under the Persian rule. They were conquered generations ago, originally by the Babylonians, taken in as prisoner, and they remained. Now, when the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians. They basically took, they took their gold, they took their silver, they took their palaces, their countries, and they also took their servants and their people basically as their property. And so, so Mordecai 
and Esther have been basically passed down their family from generation to generation and ended up essentially as property. Property with some rights granted, but second-class citizens still living in Persia, specifically in the city then of Susa. Now, at some point in this, uh, Mordecai had been made into a eunuch. Okay, now, if you're not sure what a eunuch is, I won't go into it, just out of deference to the, to the gentleman here. I see already squirming already. A eunuch, essentially, you were physically made to not be a problem around the maidens. So you could hang out with the other maidens, with the other virgins of the court, and there was no risk that you were going to be a problem there. This is where Mordecai is. He's, he's living in that. They're living under this rule. But his, some scripture calls it cousin. Some say it's niece. But Esther is living with Mordecai. Her parents have been lost a long time ago. Her parents have been killed, and she is living with her uncle, Mordecai. And Mordecai knows, man, she, she is beautiful. She would have the life. She could be elevated rather than to just be one of us commoners. She could be elevated. This is her chance. And so he puts her up for this pageant to be, for the new queen to be selected. But he tells her this. He says, do not tell the king that you're related to me. Do not tell the king that you're a Jew. Keep that to yourself. And in fact, Xerxes wouldn't have asked. He was more concerned with physical beauty than, tell me where you're from. Tell me what you like. He didn't care about any of that stuff. He was worried about her physical beauty so that he could show her off, and that's really all he wanted. Now, pause there for a second. In history, and the way things worked traditionally at that time, now, Esther does actually win this pageant, if you will, but she's elected or selected as the new queen, and traditionally, your family, the queen's family, would also be elevated along with the queen. So Mordecai then would be probably moved into the palace and given more status. Now here he is, this lonely, lowly eunuch serving in the palace. He's just a servant. Eunuchs were nothing. People didn't really look at them. They, didn't, they were just more like furniture than anything else. You just existed, but nobody paid attention to you. Nobody cared what you thought or anything. You were just there to serve. But he had this opportunity. If she won this and was elevated to queen, he would also be elevated in status and moved into the palace, living quite different life than he was at the time. But he tells her specifically, do not tell, her, tell the king. Why is that? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But think about that. He had this opportunity but he didn't take it. So Esther becomes queen. Scripture says she's chosen for her beauty and her lovely figure. And Xerxes was attracted to her more than any other. That's Esther 2.17. <coughs> Excuse me, we have that on screen. The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Okay, so she is now officially the queen with all the rights and all the privileges of Xerxes' queen. So we move forward a little bit. We don't know exactly the time frame between when this happens and the next event. But what happens is that Mordecai now 
is hanging out by the palace gates one day. He's just hanging out by the palace gates, and he overhears two of Xerxes' closest inner court, like his inner uh, friend group. Two of those guys get together, and they're plotting against Xerxes. They're plotting. They want to kill him. And Mordecai overhears this. Now, you would read that on the surface. You would read and go, well, now, why were they stupid in talking about this right in front of Mordecai? Wouldn't they be a little bit more careful? Well, in fact, Mordecai, as a lowly eunuch servant of the court, he would have had no impact on their conversation at all. Had they even noticed him, they would have said, you don't know anybody. You're not going to say anything. You probably don't even understand what we're talking about. You're just, you're just furniture, and so we're not even worried about it. And yet he's in this place where he can hear this plot. So what does he do? He tells Esther. He tells Esther, you have to inform the king that this is happening, okay? Because Esther's got an in. The eunuch couldn't, Mordecai could no way could he just walk in and talk to Xerxes. Bless you. So he tells Esther this. Esther goes and tells the king, and long story short, again, you can read the full version in the scripture itself, but the two instigators are hanged. Two instigators are hanged, the plot foiled, life goes on, okay? Except that's just the beginning of it. During all this time, there's another man, another, one of the actual, he was a member of Xerxes' inner court. This man was Haman. His name was Haman. Haman was uh, well-trusted and a, and a good advisor to Xerxes. Xerxes decides, I need somebody to help me govern the city. I need somebody to help me govern this whole thing. I'm going to bring Haman on, and I'm going to elevate him to my right hand and ask him to help me run all this. So Haman is selected and placed in this position of authority now. He is given authority over, basically over the entire kingdom, second only to the king. The problem is, along with that authority, should come some adoration, some respect from those people that you run into. But there's one guy in particular who is a royal pain in his butt, and he refuses to bow to him. Okay, Esther 3.2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. Now, why is this? You would think, okay, being, being a good uh, eunuch, being a good servant, he should be uh, very much should defer to somebody of that kind of status, especially. Why didn't he do this? More to the point, why did Haman and Mordecai have such an issue? Haman and Mordecai, through this whole story, seem to just butt heads consistently. Why is that? Well, this actually goes back to... Uh, thousands of years really prior to that where the line of Haman, Haman was an Amalekite, okay? And Mordecai came from the tribe of Benjamin. So if we go all the way back and we look at Scripture, 1 Samuel 15 actually talks about it. I won't read any Scripture of that here, but we see those tribes at war. So this is a long, long-standing feud between those two tribes, 
And Haman says, you will bow to me. And Mordecai says, no, I won't. And they end up button heads. And this is aggravating and annoying to Haman to the point where he says, not only am I going to undo you, but I'm going to take your entire people with you. So he starts hatching this plot where he's actually going to destroy all the Jewish people, not just Mordecai, but all the Jewish people. And he essentially tricks Xerxes into giving him that permission. Now think about this. This is, again, the the Battle of Thermopylae, all these other battles and reality in this point Um, Xerxes was kind of getting beat up a little bit by some of the Greeks that he was trying to attack. He wasn't having a great time of it. So when Haman comes to him and he says, hey, will you turn these people over to me? Because I tell you what, we can kill them all and they have a lot of money. We can use their money to kind of refill the royal bank account of all the money that it's costing to fight all these wars And you can actually be pretty well off if you just get rid of these little people that are insignificant. Esther 3, 8 and 9, I'll just read it to you, describe it. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people of the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all the other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put it into the king's treasuries. 10,000 talents. Back at that time, uh, the round figures used a talent was basically a day's wages. But 10,000 talents equates to about 375 tons of silver. That's a lot of silver. And Haman here is telling Xerxes, look, if we just do nothing but take it, these people are disobedient anyway. They're not like the rest of us. They're hard to govern. They're disobedient. They're a real pain in the butt, but they have money. If we take them, we can refill our treasuries, and, and nobody's, nobody's the worse for wear, except for them. That's a lot. So, Xerxes agrees. He says, okay, sounds good to me. I got other things to think about, but if by doing this we can refill our treasuries and move on, then fine. Go ahead and let it be so. Esther 3.13 says, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, on one day the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. So he sends out these couriers with a decree saying, no matter all the provinces, everywhere they are, in one day, on this one particular day, we are going to destroy them all. Now, Jews had no legal rights to defend themselves. They certainly had no legal rights in in the kingdom of Persia, that is, to attack So they were just going to be sitting ducks. Really, their only recourse would have been to go hide. But you can only hide so many places. This decree, had it carried out, would have meant the extermination of the Jewish people, man, woman, and child, all in one day. Now, Mordecai learns of this plot because when you send runners out to villages, guess what? Word's going to get out. And people are going to know this is happening Mordecai hears about this. Mordecai goes and tells Esther. 
And he says, you have to use your favor with the king in order to stop this from happening. You have to say something. You have to do something. To which Esther says, I don't know if I want to rock the boat. I've got it pretty good here. I have the king's favor. I can't just go barging in and say, you have to do something. It doesn't work like that. She could just as easily be beheaded as well for displeasing the king. She had to tread lightly. But Mordecai tells her this, Esther 4.14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. He's telling her, look, this may be why you've been elevated to this place. This may be the reason why you've been elevated to royalty, to save your people. And more than that, he's saying, look, if you don't do it, God's will is still going to be done. God will save the people, but it won't be through you, and you and your house will pay the price. He's telling her, be bold, because you were put here for a reason. Be bold and step into that reason and save your people. But Esther knows. He finally convinces her. (coughs) Excuse me. He finally convinces her, but she has to be tactful. Again, she can't just barge in and say, look, Xerxes, you got to do this or else. You're sleeping on the couch tonight. It wasn't done like that. She's got to be tactful. So what she decides, she decides that she's going to prepare these special banquets. Okay, she's going to prepare, and she knows that Haman is a part of the problem. So she says, not only do I need to kind of butter up Xerxes, but also Haman, here's what I'm going to do. She tells Xerxes, I'm going to prepare two banquets, because one is never enough in the Persian Empire. We're going to do two banquets, and I want it just to be you and Haman. And I'll prepare the finest food, and we'll make it such a feast, and it's going to be great. So Xerxes says, hey, sounds good to me. Let's do it. Another reason to party, another reason to feast. Let's do it. Mordecai now, uh, uh, Haman, is kind of feeling his oats. He's like, ah, the queen. The queen has invited me to sit down with Xerxes to this feast. Now I've made it. I am truly a big deal, and it's obvious to me. So he leaves the palace, and he's going to go home, and he's going to tell his wife and his other friends, and he's going to brag about what a big deal he is at this point. The only problem is, in order to get home, he's got to exit the gates of the palace. And who's hanging out at the gates of the palace? But Mordecai. Mordecai, again, refuses to bow down to him, aggravating Haman to the core. He is beside himself, and he doesn't, like, I've got to do something about this guy. He refuses to bow to me. He refuses to show me any respect. I have to do something. He goes home, and he's basically telling his buddies, there's, I've got this banquet that I'm going to. This is going to be great, but there's this guy, Mordecai. He hangs out at the palace, and he won't He won't bow to me. He won't show me respect. He won't act like he's supposed to act. And his friends are saying, you have to do something about that guy. 
You have got to do something about that guy right now, today, before other people start seeing that, hey, we can get away with it. If we can get away with disrespecting Haman, then maybe more people will start to do it. You have to nip this right now and stop it right now. So they convince him. They say, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a giant gallows. Scripture calls it a scaffold, but build a giant gallows at your home, Haman, and we're going to go ask Xerxes tomorrow because they couldn't just decide we're going to kill him. They had to get Xerxes' permission to do this. So they said, tomorrow morning, when you go in for the banquet tomorrow, first thing you're going to do is get with Xerxes and ask for permission to hang Mordecai on your gallows. Sounds like a good plan. Fast forward to the next morning. The problem is in the middle of the night. So we're only going to fast forward halfway. We're going to fast forward to the middle of the night. Xerxes wakes up in the middle of the night and says, hey, I never did properly thank that guy who spoiled that plot for my assassination. I never did properly thank that guy. Now, Xerxes would normally not give two seconds of thought to thanking someone, okay? But in this time, he did. And so what he does is he sends somebody to, he says, go look, go look in the records, look it up and find out who that guy was that spoiled that plot and that actually helped me out, did me a solid. Find out who that is. So his people go and they find out and they say, okay, this is who it is. It's this, it's this guy, it's a eunuch in your own court and his name is Mordecai. So Xerxes is like, okay. He's thinking about what, what can I do? What can I do for that? Just about this time, Haman busts in and goes, okay, here we are for the, for the banquet. I'm here, Xerxes. But hey, before we get to the banquet, I have a question to ask you. I have a favor that I need, something I have to do. And Xerxes says, okay, okay, but before you get to that, I have a question for you. Let's say there's a guy. Let's say there's a guy who really did me a solid, who did a great thing for me, and I want to honor him. I want to thank him for all that he has done for me and show him how much favor he has with me. How should I do something like that? Xerxes is not accustomed to thanking people. So he's like, how would I do that? So Haman's like, okay, Haman has no idea what he's talking about. He's like, okay, well, here's, here's what I'd do. Here's what I'd do. Esther 6, 7 through 9 says this. Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man with whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square. And proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Xerxes thinks about it for a second and says, that is a great idea, Haman. That's perfect. The guy's name is Mordecai. Will you go find him and do... Mordecai's brain explodes at this point, or Haman's. Haman's brain is just like, ah. So he's... It says, Scripture says that he rushed home. He was in so much anguish. He had his hair, head covered, gnashing his teeth, 
throwing dust, tearing his clothes, all these things that they do. He was so angry that this was happening, but he had to do it. He had to do it because that was the king's decree. So not only that, but he has to set up this parade for Mordecai and honor him. So now, later on, back to the banquet now. We're back at the banquet. Xerxes is fat and happy. He's been had this private banquet made by his queen, and they're back there. And Esther is looking for her opening to where she can tell Xerxes of this plot and try and save her people. Again, she has to be careful. Any irritation or, or, or upset in the king's happiness, and he's likely to just send her away, and she'll lose her chance. Esther 7, 3, and 4 say, Then Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we'd only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Meaning, if we're just going to be sold into slavery, I wouldn't bother you with it. But my people and myself, by extension, we're all going to be destroyed by this plot. Well, Xerxes says, absolutely, my queen, whatever you want. She uncovers then that it's Haman who had made this plot. And, of course, Haman has no elevation and authority over his own queen. And, again, using her beauty and her feminine wiles, he says, look, I can get another Haman. I can't replace my queen. Or he could. We've seen him do it. Long story and kind of the end of the story, Haman then is ultimately hanged at his own gallows. Haman is put to death at the, at the gallows that he built to kill Mordecai. Scripture says at the end of that, Xerxes' anger subsides. He calms down. And he actually issues this edict on behalf of the Jews. Esther goes to him and says, hey, can we, my people, can we defend ourselves now? Can we defend ourselves against attackers? Can we have those kind of rights? And Xerxes actually issues a decree, and he says, yes, not only can you defend yourselves, but you can actually attack your enemies, attack and kill your enemies. Unheard of for any people group in the Persian Empire to have that kind of power and authority autonomously outside of the king. But Xerxes gives that power to Esther and to the Jews. Now, if we read on in the rest of Scripture, and I won't touch that part, but you can look at that yourself. Actually, the, the Jewish people end up attacking their enemies within the city walls, within Susa, which again is completely unheard of. And then Xerxes sees Mordecai's faithfulness, sees Mordecai's boldness, and the fact that even though He's at odds with him in many ways and his servant that he put himself out there to protect Xerxes. And he elevates him to Haman's spot. So we see Haman hanged on his own gallows for trying to destroy these people. And ultimately then Mordecai is elevated to second in command only to Xerxes in all of Persia. 
elevated in his household. Then finally, at the end of this book, it's not literally the end, but it's chapter 9, verses 20 to 22. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate on the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. This is where the holiday, the feast of Purim, was actually instituted by decree of Mordecai back in those days. This is how it happened. Now, that's the end of the story excuse me, of in, in the book of Esther. That's the end of the story. However, as I said, doesn't explicitly mention God. And where's Jesus in all of this? Remember how I said all of Scripture points towards Jesus, points towards a fulfillment. Where's Jesus in all this? Well, let's go take a look, see if we can find him. Remember last week I talked about types and shadows, Okay, if you missed that, you can go back and listen to the podcast. Essentially, types and shadows are things in the past, Old Testament specifically in this context, that foreshadow a fulfillment later on. So something in the Old Testament that you find, say the snake in the Garden of Eden, okay, the snake in the Garden of Eden being a type of Satan, and we see that fulfilled later. So that's how types and shadows work. We see Mordecai here in this story as a type of Jesus, a precursor in some of the things that he did that echo what Jesus would fulfill. And we see Haman then as a type of Satan, doing everything that he can to destroy the Jewish people, but then obviously being foiled in his plot. So many similarities here to the life of Jesus. We see Esther had lost her family. Esther and Mordecai, they had lost their family. They were from humble origins, and yet Esther elevated to royalty. Haman elevated only to the right hand of the king. Mordecai took Esther in and became her father figure, much like Joseph and Jesus. Okay, so we see that similarity. Esther and Mordecai both interceded and put themselves out there boldly on behalf of their people in order to save them. So we see that. Now, specifically, talking about Mordecai as a type of Jesus. He was the lowest of the low, despised. Nobody paid any attention to him, and yet he was elevated to that position of of honor and authority. He was the one that the gallows was built for, and that very gallows that was meant to destroy him was used to destroy his enemy. Again, Mordecai elevated to the throne, but elevated at the right time. Mordecai could have claimed his privilege all the way back when Esther was first elevated to queen, but he didn't. He didn't do that. He did not claim that, much as we see Jesus not not asserting his rights as the Son of God to get himself out of all the things that came his way. He submitted himself willfully to those things so that when the time was right, the time that had been preordained 
when that time was right, he would be elevated. And that's what we see happening there with Mordecai. Then, most importantly for a Christian to be able to see this, had Haman's plot succeeded, all of the biblical prophecy about a Messiah coming from the line of David would have been ended right there. Think how close that came. But for a few things, a few events that happened exactly as they had to, in order for this to work out, the line of David would have been ended before Jesus. Now, God could have dropped Jesus down from the cloud had that happened and said, I'm still fulfilling it with Jesus. But we would not have the scripture. We read in Matthew 1.17, In all then, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. That would not have happened had this, had this plot of Haman succeeded. Jeremiah 33, 14, 17 is another one that talks about the line of David, the branch of David, and that's where the Savior, the Messiah, would come from. You can read that on your own if you like. But so many things had to happen exactly right for this whole story to work out. Mordecai and Esther being conquered people and coming along as property, essentially, into Persia and being able to serve in in the palace there, having access to where they needed to be, choosing not to leave with the others to go to Jerusalem because they could have said, hey, we've got some kind of freedom. Let's go to Jerusalem and let's live in the promised land, the holy land. Let's go there. But they said, we're going to stay behind and we're going to serve. We're going to serve the king of Persia who's not entirely friendly to them. The king's vanity causes him to, in long story, but elevate Esther up. Mordecai tells Esther not to tell Xerxes that she's related to him or that she's a Jew at all. He doesn't claim his rightful place in the palace when he has the opportunity to do it. And it's only by that humility that allowed him to overhear the plot at the gate that allowed everything else to be set in motion to gain that kind of favor and then ultimately to save their people. Mordecai and Haman and their thousand-year feud being a part of this puzzle, Haman would have destroyed the Jews had Xerxes not woke up in the middle of the night and said, I need to remember who that guy was and go thank him. So many steps along the way. Mordecai, or Haman, had power and authority, but he did not have God's favor. That's what we need to look at. So the book of Esther then shows us, worship team, you guys can go ahead and head on up, God's providence and his control in everything. Every circumstance, everything that happens, God is in control. And he will watch over his people, and he will bless his people, and he will keep his people safe no matter what hostile foreign land they find themselves in. God is always in control. And those who are faithful to him, he has made the covenant promise. You are my people. And so nothing that can happen to us, no events in history, nothing can stop God's covenant promises from being fulfilled. God's way will be had. Let's look one more time at that last scripture, Esther 4.14. Look at it one more time. For if you remain silent at this time, 
relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. You mean God's covenant promises will be fulfilled. There's nothing anybody can do to stop that. But you and your father's house will perish. Meaning you have this opportunity to bless yourself as well, to reap that blessing of obedience to what God is asking you to do. But if you choose not to, you may perish. Meanwhile, God's will is still going to be done. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. God can and will ensure that his covenant promises remain intact, that his prophecy and his promises in the word will be fulfilled. There is nothing that us as feeble human beings can do to stop that from happening. When God makes a promise, he will keep it. But then the very last part of that, we can reap the blessings that come with obedience or someone else will. Obedience to God's leading. If God has put you in a place, you have something to do there. Look for what God is asking you to do in that place. It can be a hostile place. It can be a place that doesn't seem on the surface to be anything that that is going to reap any benefits for you. And yet, if God has you there, there's a purpose. And our purpose is to be obedient to what he asks us to do. Be bold to do it when he says the time is right. Because this is all about timing. If timing had been different, if any of these steps of obedience had been different, the story would have worked out differently. God's promises would have been the same, but the blessing would have been different. So as we go into communion, let's take for a moment and just ask God, where is there maybe a place in my life that I'm not being obedient to something that you've put in front of me? Maybe something that I'm afraid of, like Esther. I'm, uh, I don't want to rock the boat because I've got it pretty good. Got it pretty good here. And if I rock the boat, I risk getting kicked out altogether. But she was obedient. She didn't want to be. But she ended up being obedient and reaped the blessing of that. Where are there places in our life maybe where we're being asked or led by God into a situation that we see is a little bit intimidating? And ask him, we need to be bold and walk into that. Because we want God's blessing. His will is going to be done. The blessing comes from our obedience. Amen? So in communion, at the crosses, we do communion two ways. At the crosses, we've got juice and bread and gluten-free crackers. And you can just dip into the juice and serve yourself or your family that way. Up front here, we have wine. And Gabe and I will be serving up here if you'd like to be served. At our church, if you are a believer in Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, you're invited to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member, anything like that. But before, again, the worship team will play on and we can move around and begin to respond that way. We have prayer team in the back. If you'd like some prayer, you can go do that. But let's just take a moment and just seek God's heart and have him guide us. Amen? Thank you, church.
Cannot earn what you so freely 